0: This morning, we're tackling this topic of war. The big framing question is this. How are Christians to respond and think about war? It's a significant question because for, uh, really, since the, the beginning of time, war and conflict have been the reality that we've lived in. So I found this map online. <clears throat> this is the World Conflict Map of 2012. It's a little hard to see these icons on the bottom, but essentially they, uh, they are showing where there's places of conflict, where there's places of war, what types of war is uh, happening in those places. So the little skull and crossbones is where pirates live. I didn't even know that pirates still existed, but there is piracy happening still. Uh, the little tank signifies where ground warfare is taking place. The far uh, little square box on the end is where there's cyber attacks Going on, that plane is where air operations are happening. There's one in the middle that again looks like a little uh, like a rectangle. That's where drug trafficking is happening. So this map essentially is uh, identifying in the year 2012 where is there war, where is there conflict in our world? This is our reality. This is why it's important to ask this question as Christians: How do we respond to war? How do we respond to conflict? Now, there's tensions in this talk. There's tensions because I personally have never been in the armed forces. I don't have experience there. Many of us have loved ones who have served in the military. Many of you or, or some of you maybe have served in the military. And so this is an emotional topic. It's an emotional because we all have People that we know or ourselves have been a part of the armed services, and so there's some emotion wrapped into this, is how can we talk about this without offending people? I hope that you hear this morning that my heart is one of humility. Again, it doesn't come from a place where I've actually served, but it comes from a place of prayer, it comes from a place of, uh, of trying to best see what Jesus speaks about these issues. In many ways, I feel like the church has been woefully absent from this conversation, We haven't really educated our people, our communities, very well about how do we think about this stuff? How do we process, how do we theologically think about war, about conflict, about violence? So this morning, that is the goal. This morning, the goal is to really examine this idea and try to figure out what does Jesus say about this stuff? So even though there is tension, my hope my prayer is that I provide somewhat of a framework to think about this stuff. We're going to start by first looking at a video. After this video, I'm going to give you a little bit of history. Then we're going to go uh, into the scripture this morning. But let me, um, let me put a little disclaimer out there for this video. Uh, first of all, if there are young ears in the crowd, now could potentially be an appropriate time that you might usher them out. Uh, Secondly, this video should make you squirm a little bit. It's not not graphic in in terms of what you're going to see, but the person talking is going to say some things that should make us squirm. So let's uh, let's watch this video, and then we'll talk about it afterwards.
1: For almost 2,000 years, Christians have been lawyering the Bible to try and figure out how love thy neighbor can mean hate thy neighbor and how turn the other cheek can mean screw you, I'm buying space lasers. (laughs) Martin Luther King gets to call himself a Christian because he actually practiced loving his enemies. And Gandhi was so f***ing Christian, he was Hindu. (laughs) But if you rejoice in revenge, torture, and war, hey, that's why they call it The weekend. (laughs) you cannot say you're a follower of the guy who explicitly said love your enemies and do good to those who hate you the next line isn't and if that doesn't work send a titanium fanged dog to rip his nuts off (laughs) jesus lays on that hippie stuff pretty thick he has lines like do not repay evil with evil and do not take revenge on someone who wrongs you really it's in that book, You Hold Up When You Scream at Gay People. <laughs> and, and not to put too fine a point on it, but nonviolence was kind of Jesus' trademark. Kind of his big thing. To not follow that part of it is like joining Greenpeace and hating whales. I mean, you know, there's interpreting and then there's just ignoring. It's just ignoring if you're for torture, as are more evangelical Christians than any other religion. You're supposed to look at that figure of Christ on the cross and think, how could a man suffer like that and forgive? Not Romans are. he still has his eyes. <laughs> But you see, I can say that because I'm a non-Christian, just like most Christians. (laughs) And Christians, I know, I'm sorry, I know you hate this and you want to square this circle, but you can't. I'm not even judging you. I'm just saying logically, if you ignore every single thing Jesus commanded you to do, you're not a Christian. You're just auditing. (laughs) You're not Christ's followers. You're just fans. And if you believe the earth was given to you to kick ass on while gloating, you're not really a Christian. You're a Texan. (laughs) All right. Thank you very much.
0: So I thought I would begin by just offending every single possible person I could. Mission accomplished. Um, That video... It's hard for me to watch. I've seen it a number of times. It should make us squirm. We should watch that, and it should cause us to squirm a little bit inside. Bill Maher is the guy who's uh, talking there. He's uh, a a professed atheist. Whether you like him or not, he has some pretty insightful stuff to say. I think he speaks a pretty hard truth, the truth that sometimes uh, we have to be at least honest enough to say, I may need to hear that. So, what do we do with this? That, that video was actually, it came, uh, he has this, his own show on HBO or a, a cable channel like that, and he, uh, that video was in response to the, the Christian celebration of when Osama bin Laden was killed. And so that was why that, uh, he did that segment. So, what do we do with this? Should we cheer when somebody is violently killed like that? Should we support war? Should we be appalled by war? These are the questions that we have to wrestle with this morning. Let me pray, and then uh, we'll jump in. God, again, we, uh, we, pray for, we pray for sound minds. We pray for um, our hearts to be open to your word, to your teaching this morning. Spirit, that you would move in and through us God, that you would open our eyes to see your scripture in new ways, to understand your scripture to greater depth this morning. Lord, we pray that um, if there needs to be uh, confession on any of our parts, that we would be willing. If there just needs to be celebration and worship, that we would be willing. Lord, give us... uh, Give us the strength to hear your hard teachings and to follow those with all that we have. Lord, we love you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's start with a uh, maybe a five to seven minute history lesson, alright? Uh, for the first 300 years of the Christian faith, Christians were nonviolent. Christianity was this underground movement that was in the Roman world, and Christians experienced great oppression in this point, almost to the point, or for many, to the point of uh, being martyred in many of these extreme cases. And the early church practiced nonviolent. The Desert Fathers, some of uh, our greatest early Christian thinkers, wrote extensively about the need for the Christian to practice nonviolence. But then in the fourth century, literally overnight, something happened that changed the entire landscape of Christianity. And we still feel the effects of this. Constantine, through the edict of Milan, ratified, he was the, uh, the emperor at this point, Roman emperor, ratified Christianity as the state religion of the Roman world. In this move, Christendom was established, and Christianity was lifted from an underground and subversive religious movement, an organic religious movement that was spreading throughout the Roman world. It was lifted to the ultimate place of power and position. It, this really people look at this and say, "This is maybe the most significant moment in the history of Christianity when this happened." Uh, one scholar says this: Christianity went from the persecuted minority to the persecuting majority overnight. This is a critical thing to understand. So now Rome as a Christian empire spent the next hundred years trying to figure out, how are we empire and how are we Christian? How do we do these two things? How does the Bible fit in to what we have built our empire upon? They had borders to keep. They had interests to protect. They had lands to continue to conquer. And yet Rome fell in the early 5th century, which many blamed on this new state-sponsored religion, Christianity. It's in this context that a guy, Augustine, or Augustine, sorry, arguably the first and greatest theologian, wrote the book City of God. How many people have heard this book? Okay, So several of us have, have heard this. It's a weighty book. Really what it is, is it's his, uh, his attempt to create an ethical treatise on how Christian faith is to be uh, understood in relationship to the Roman Empire. So this is his journey to set out and say, this is how the Christian faith works within empire. This is how the Christian faith stands against other philosophies, how it stands against other religions. And it's in this text where we first see the theological lens which war is understood and justi- justified from a state's position. This is what he says. The, my, the wise man will wage just wars, as if he would not all the rather lament the necessity of just wars, if he remembers that he is a man. For if they were not just, he would not wage them, and he would therefore be, del- be delivered from all wars. So this, uh, being one, one small segment of this larger section on this topic, is one of the first apologies... That we see for war, for a Christian nation sponsoring war. About a thousand years later, a guy named Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, another notable theologian, expanded upon this idea, Augustine's idea. And he gave three points, kind of fleshed this idea out by saying this. First, war must occur for good and for a just purpose rather than for self-gain or an exercise of power. Second, just war must be waged by a properly instituted authority such as the state. And third, peace must be the central motive even in the midst of violence. So Aquinas takes what uh, Augustine had written and says, let me expand this. Let me give this a little bit of detail. 700 years later, 1984, through the work of the Catholic Church, some notable uh, Protestant theologians the just war theory kind of comes into its, uh, its full capacity and it becomes a 13-point theory that many of us accept now. So I put uh, the first seven points up here. So here are the first seven points. These are the criteria in which a just war can be started. So there's just cause, there's comparative justice, competent authority, right intention, probability of success, last reward and proportionality. So if all of these things are met a state can enter into war with another state. Okay, the next five. These are now the ways in which war can be conducted. These are the five criteria which must be met throughout the war to make this a just war as it's being fought. There must be distinction, uh, proportionality, military necessity, fair treatment of prisoners, and uh, no means. Now, some of these I know won't make a ton of sense. We don't have time to get into each of these. I can send you resources. I have some stuff even here with me this morning. If you want to read uh, kind of a better idea of what these things actually mean, I can give that to you. Essentially what's happened, though, is we have developed a 13-point criteria that can be met that would then lead us into thinking, okay, this war that we're entering in, this war that we're currently fighting right now is a just war. Now, what's interesting about, uh, about the, the just war is, one, it's shaped, I would say, most of Christian understanding in terms of this idea of war for the 21st century, that most denominations would ascribe to this, w- whether you know it or not, many denominations have kind of backed this, uh, Protestant denominations have said, yeah, we can kind of get behind this. Interesting about this theory, though, nobody enters... A war, no uh, authority enters a war not thinking that all of these 13 criteria have been met or will be met. Every authority, every dictator enters into a war thinking that they have just cause to go into a war. But these things can be skewed so easily. There's a lot of gray in these criteria. Not everybody ascribes to the just war theory. There has been a a radical counter-movement to this idea. Uh, In the 16th century, a radical movement within Christianity was born in response to the corruption of the Catholic Church. There were many points of difference. One of the most significant being this idea of how do we approach violence? what What do we understand about war What is the Christian's response to war? What we call uh, this is is where the radical reformation was birthed. And out of this, many people call it the Anabaptist movement. This is where we get the Mennonites, the Quakers, the Church of the Brethren are some of the the more notable denominations that fall in this Anabaptist uh, movement. Often called peace churches. They tended to be more separatists by nature. They interpret the scripture in in a pretty conservative fashion. But across the board, they teach nonviolence. What we now call pacifism is what they're famous for. Many uh, evangelical denominations have gotten behind this idea of pacifism. This is what pacifism is defined as. It's the opposition to war and violence, even to the point of allowing self-harm rather than to resort to violent resistance. In their most comprehensive statement fleshing this out... This is what it says, thereby shall also fall away from us the diabolical weapons of violence, such as sword, armor, and the like, and all their use to protect friends or against enemies. By virtue of the word of Christ, you shall not resist evil. So, we have these two extremes. We have just war on this side, we have pacifism on this side, and then a whole lot of gray in the middle. I think the question still stands, well, well, what do we do with this? Where do I land? Which camp do I get into? Either we believe and we ascribe to the just war theory, the criteria that has to be met, or we journey with the Anabaptists, trying to seek a life of pacifism. I believe there are flat sides to both of these options. Let me start with just war theory. First, it's not biblical. It's a pretty significant flat side. At no place does Jesus lay out this criteria for war. Now, certainly built upon theological ideas, but the theory itself is not a biblical theory. Jesus does not speak about war being a viable option anywhere in the scripture. So we have to understand that the just war theory is a man-made criteria created by using a theological understanding to justify a system of organized armed forces to apply violence for specific ends. It is not a biblical idea. Built upon biblical principles, you could say some of those criteria certainly would be, but it is not a biblical idea. And with pacifism... I feel the tension in its propensity to sequester people from the current situations of the world, to create a culture that is disconnected from the oppressed world around them. For too long, this idea of traditional pacifism has been the smokescreen that's allowed many Christians to insulate themselves from the world's problems. I'm a pacifist. I don't have to deal with that. I'm going to kind of remove myself from culture, remove myself from the world of hurt around me. My opinion is that neither of these are viable options for where we sit today. I do believe that there is a viable option, though, and I believe we can read it in Scripture. About nine months ago, I spoke to this idea of third ways, uh, this, uh, this concept that a gentleman named Walter Wink has famously written about. Uh, So some of this, if you were here, this may sound a little repetitive, but I think it fits in really, really well here. The third way is the alternative to these polarizing ideas, to just war on this side, to pacifism on this side. Here's what a third way is described as. A creative, non-violent response to evil persons or situations. You see... There is two built-in human reactions to conflict. If you've taken a psychology course at any point, you will know this. But when conflict arises, there's two natural human reactions. Either we fight back or we flee away. It's called fight or flight. Those are the two natural human reactions. Conflict arises, we fight or we run away. We either fight back, i.e., just war, or we flee more like pacifism. I believe the third way is the middle ground between that natural human response of flight or fight. This is what Walter Wink says. Jesus' third way is not inseparable counsel to perfection, uh, to perfection attainable only by a few. It is, a, it is simply the right way to live and can be pursued by many. The more who attempt it, the more mutual support there will be in following it. I believe the third way is a better way. I believe it provides a better option for dealing with violence and conflict that is around us. If you want to turn to the scripture, we're going to to read a section here. It's Matthew 5, 38 through 42. This is what uh, Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. I think this scripture often gets misinterpreted. We read this and we think, oh, well, the Christians should be dominated in all circumstances. The Christians should be uh, avail themselves to be walked over by anyone but if you properly exegete this scripture, you will see that this is all about these creative, nonviolent ways to stand up against oppression. So let's first look at uh, turning the other cheek. The scripture says this. speaks of a person getting struck on the right cheek, which is important. But in order to hit somebody, and you're going to kind of have to put your mind, uh, think about this. In order to hit somebody on the right cheek, you would have to use the fist in your left hand. Culturally, in Hebraic culture the left hand was only used for unclean tasks. It was never permissible to use your left hand to interact with another human being. It would bring shame upon you, upon your family. And so to strike somebody on the right cheek would mean that somebody would have to use a backhanded slap, which makes a ton of sense in this culture. The aggressor would use a backhanded slap to the victim, which would signify superiority. So masters slapped their servants in this way. Husbands would correct their wives in this way. Parents would correct their, uh, their children in this way using the backhanded slap, the right hand to another person's right cheek. This was a way to establish and reestablish the hierarchy that was in the culture. It was a way to dominate somebody else. So when struck in this fashion, it was a significant sign of degradation to the victim. But Jesus does not instruct us to fight back. He doesn't instruct us to run away. Instead, he instructs us to turn our other cheek, being the left cheek. Now again, to receive a blow on the left cheek either meant you would have a backhanded slap from your left hand, which would have never happened. Again, that was uh, impermissible. Or it means that you receive a blow from the fist of somebody's right hand. Probably would have hurt a lot more but it would have equalized the playing field. By doing that, that person, the, uh, the aggressor, was put in the position to say, if I use my right hand to strike this person, I am now saying that they are equal to me. I no longer have the dominance to say I'm using a backhanded slap, but I'm now fighting them, being a, an aggressor towards them in a way that reestablishes who's in power. We're now on equal footing What Jesus is teaching is not that we avail ourselves to be clobbered in every every situation. Instead, it urges us to find these nonviolent, creative ways to expose the unjust and unchecked systems of dominance in our world. By presenting your left cheek, you put the aggressor in the position to say, if I strike this person in this way, I am saying that they are equal to me. It's pretty powerful to think about it in that way. Giving your coat, the second one. Jesus' second example is set in the court of law where a creditor is suing a poor man. Levitical law allowed for the creditor to take a person's coat as collateral, but then mandated that each night that coat was given back so that the person would have something warm to sleep in. By giving the debtor, uh, or by giving the creditor both the outer and inner garment, the indebted would have been in court naked. To be forced into a position uh, into a position where the poor was naked in front of other people would have brought great shame upon the creditor. To create a situation where it made somebody or forced somebody to be naked would have been a sign of shame on this creditor. Again, putting them in the position to say, well, now this, uh, the, the outer and inner garment are being offered to me, and if I take them, that will bring shame upon me. It reestablishes this system of dominance. The image of this naked debtor in the courtroom would have unmasked this significant usury that was taking place between the rich and the poor. The indebted saying, you have forced me to be naked. You have brought shame upon your family because of the way that you have been using this system of dominance. Going the extra mile, this last example Roman law uh, stated that any civilian could be forced to carry a Roman soldier's pack. Any civilian, being a, a Jewish person, could have been uh, forced to carry a soldier's pack. Think about Simon of Cyrene carrying the cross. He was forced into that position. Really, this, this is about forced labor. In choosing to walk the second mile, the noncombatant forces the Roman soldier to make the decision. Do I allow my pack to be carried for a second mile and perhaps face military punishment Or do I ask for the pack back? Interesting. Because now this soldier has to ask this non-combatant, this Jewish person to say, can I have my backpack back? You've carried it a mile. If the person continued to walk, this person could be sent to or or receive military punishment. Re-establishing the hierarchical nature of the culture exposing the system of dominance. All of these are creative, nonviolent reactions to evil people, to evil situations, to violence. There are more. Think about the woman caught in adultery. Think about Jesus' healing of the ear in the garden. Paul ministering to prison guards. These are all ways that creative nonviolence was used To reestablish the dominant system, to place people on equal ground, to expose what was going unchecked. Not only does Jesus give us personal examples, we have real world examples of this. Think about Martin Luther King and the civil rights. That was a third way. Think about Gandhi. Think about Mandela in South Africa. Think about the student in Tiananmen Square standing in front of that tank. These are all third ways where people chose to say, I am not going to let you dominate me. I am standing up for what I believe in, in a nonviolent way, and you have to now make the decision what you're going to do. We have equaled the playing ground, and in those situations, violence came to an end. All of these instances reestablished human dignity. Human dignity was restored in each of these examples. Violence was put to an end, And the balance of power was equalized. Now, when we come here and we say the question today is about war and the answer I give you is third ways, that may be uh, not enough for some people. Some may be a little unsatisfied that we didn't actually answer some of the questions behind the questions or the elephants behind the elephants. So here's two that I think are important. I'm not going to exhaustively talk about these things, but a couple of things that might be helpful as you go from here, as you continue to process in your group. Many people say, okay, I understand that Jesus was nonviolent, but what about God in the Old Testament who seems like a really violent God? A God who sponsors war. A God who uses the Jewish people to kill entire nations. What do you do with that? Couple of answers. One, you have to read the Old Testament as a narrative of God's work through a people group, not as a handbook, not as an instruction manual of what we are to do or how we are to leave, uh, live. The Old Testament is a narrative of God's redemptive work for the Jewish people. Secondly, God's ways are not our ways. He is Lord, we are not. He can use the means that he wants. We don't have that freedom. Thirdly, is thirdly a word? I'm not sure it is. Third, the New Testament assumes the Old Testament, but it is clear that through Jesus, a new covenant is established, a new covenant is instituted. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus says many different times You have heard it said, but I say to you, through this new covenant, Love and grace and truth reign. Not dominance, not violence. So that might be one question. The second question is this one. Can a Christian serve in the military? What do you do with that? Is it ever okay? Is it appropriate? Is it right? Are you not a Christian if you're in the armed forces? Well, let me ask you a couple of questions about that. Can, a Christian, can you be a Christian and pay your taxes? knowing that about 50% of all of the taxes we pay go towards our country's defense of itself, goes towards military operations. Can you be a Christian and watch a violent movie or play a violent video game? Can you be a Christian and own stock in companies that manufacture weapons that propagate war? I don't know. Here's my answer to the question of can, a, can somebody in the military serve as a Christian? Of course they can. It's kind of a ridiculous question, honestly. I have one of my closest friends served in the military, was deployed. He loves Jesus. I've seen it. He's a follower of Jesus Christ and he served in the military. Yes, Christians can be in the military. We even see it in Scripture. Jesus not only interacts with a centurion, a a Roman soldier in Matthew 8, but then marvels at his faith. The scripture said he marvels at his faith and he heals this guy's servant. At no point does Jesus bring up his vocation. Jesus doesn't say, hey, I'm going to heal your servant, but you've got to get out of the military. This guy was oppressing the very people of Jesus. And yet Jesus marvels at his faith and heals his servant. It's pretty clear that Jesus' first concern wasn't this guy's vocation, so maybe ours shouldn't be either. Now I'll take it one step further. We as Christians, as faithful followers of Christ, should have nothing but support, but love and care for the men and women who serve in our military. Not only that, but we should actively seek ways to show them our love and our appreciation. Just as we would... Anyone else? That is our call as Christians. There are more questions. We should wrestle with these questions. I hope that you do. But what's interesting about this talk is I actually don't think this talk is about war at all. I think the real elephant is violence. Is it ever okay for a Christian to be violent, to use violence, to support Violence. I mean, that's really what war is. War is just the systematized application of violence between two countries for specific ends. We can hold opinions on one end of the extreme. We can try to find third ways. But really, that question is, what do we do personally about violence? Can I ever be a violent person? Is that okay? For myself, I've practiced nonviolence. And I would say that I fall in this realm of moderate violence pacifism, where I would, by and large, say, well, personally, I'm a non-violent person. But I understand that there could be situations where violence needs needs to happen, where wars uh, need to go on, where um, there are specific situations where violence is the only option. I think for, by and large, most of my life, I've kind of lived in that world. You think about Uh, Situations like the the nuclear bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and you say, well, ultimately, we may have saved more lives through those actions. Or you think about a guy like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. One of the heroes of our faith also conspired to have Hitler murdered. And you think, well, yeah, I mean, I kind of get that. Or I think if my family was being attacked, there would be nothing that I wouldn't do for them, even if it meant being violent. That's that's where I've lived. But the more that I've studied, the more that I've read, here's what I'm assured of. Jesus does not give us these outs. There are no qualifying statements in Jesus' teaching about nonviolence. At no place place does he say, hey, nonviolence is the way except in these situations. Jesus' teaching on nonviolence and the love of enemies is airtight throughout Scripture. Matthew 5 says this, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Luke 6 says this, love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. John 18 says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Later on in Romans, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Hebrews 12, pursue peace with all men in the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. These scriptures just scratch the surface of the different teachings about nonviolence, about our role to pursue nonviolence, about our role in in how we respond to evil and violence. What they all have in common, none of them give latitude to be anything but peaceable and nonviolent. This is why I think that video that I first showed speaks a valuable truth saying that one of the non-negotiables of the Christian faith is this idea of non-violence. There is no room for the glorification or celebration of violence in Christianity. No room. If we truly love our neighbors and seek to do good to our enemies, then there is no situation where celebrating violence is a faithful Christian response. Walter Wink says this, cannot be stressed too much. Love of enemies has, for our time, become the litmus test of authentic Christian faith. Love of enemies is the recognition that the enemy, too, is a child of God. If our greatest litmus test is the love that we have for our enemies, then I think it's critical that we understand this idea of nonviolence. I think it's critical that we wrestle with this idea of, is it ever okay for me to engage in? in a violent response. Jesus never used violence to hurt another person. Yet, in the same way, Jesus never insulated himself from the oppression in the world that was around him. What he did is find creative, nonviolent ways to respond to the violence in his day. Jesus practiced third ways. I think it's critical that we remember that the greatest third way, the cross of Christ, is what gives us freedom. It is the greatest picture of the third way in the history of humanity, in the history of the world. Jesus endured all of the hate, all of the evil, all of the violence of his culture, of ours, when he took our sin, not fighting back, not running away, but choosing that third way, Accepting on our behalf, suffering on our behalf, providing the third way so that we wouldn't have to. That is the third way. That is what we are called into. This is the God that we serve. This is the God that we love. And it's in his character that we seek to live and be transformed in. Let's pray.